This is R.J. Rushdoony, Easy Chair Number 117, March 11, 1986. In our last session, I had with me Cindy Rocker, who talked about her work. There was something I wanted to add in that session that I did not have the time to do. So I shall begin by citing something from an otherwise indifferent book, Yaroslav Pelikan's Jesus Through the Centuries, published by the Yale University Press in 1985. On page 161, uh, there is this very interesting passage, and I quote, To hearers who cooed, sentimentally over the infant Jesus and clucked over his poverty. If only I had been there, how quick I would have been to help the baby. Luther retorted, Why don't you do it now? You have Christ in your neighbor. The familiar admonition of the Sermon on the Mount to consider the lilies of the field and the birds of the air became at Luther's hands a discourse about how Jesus, quoting Luther, is making the birds our schoolmasters and teachers. It is a great and abiding disgrace to us that in the gospel a helpless sparrow should become a theologian and a preacher to the wisest of men, as if he were saying to us, Look, you miserable man, you have house and home, money and property, yet you cannot find peace." Unquote. I'd like to begin our session this time by turning to a book, unfortunately out of print, published in 1980, Fantastic Invasion, Notes on Contemporary Africa by Patrick Marnham, M as in Mary, A-R-N-H-A-M, an outstanding book about the status of the so-called independent states of Africa. It is also a book about the problem white men have become to Africa since the end of colonialism. As a matter of fact, in some respects, we have just entered into the age of colonialism in Africa. There has been what he calls a fantastic invasion of Russians, Americans, French, Chinese, and others, which never stops. They are relief workers, embassy officials, game wardens, hunters, paleontologists, the anthropologists, who are wreaking a great deal of havoc in Africa. And because so much aid is being given to these emerging states, as they are called, they are able to control a great deal of the country. Marnham begins by dealing with the game preserves. Supposedly, the animals of Africa, the native animals, are endangered species. We have vast preserves for a variety of them. He begins by citing, for example, the elephant farms. 
and states that the theoretical basis of elephant farming is the belief that the species is in danger of extinction. This is, however, hardly the case, because while they talk about the danger of extinction, they have no accurate census of the elephant population. A few years ago, the figures presented to the World Wilderness Conference suggested that between 100,000 and 400,000 African elephants were poached each year by native hunters out of an estimated total population of 1,300,000. This would mean in three or four years the population should have disappeared and we should have no more elephants now. But the fact is they are increasing so rapidly that in all the game parks it is necessary for the game wardens to kill off a number of them regularly. But we're not told about that. For example, the white rhinoceros is supposedly scarce and in the 1960s a great deal was heard about it as a threatened species, but the fact is that uh, they are far from scarce and are instead growing very, very rapidly. This kind of thinking leads to all kinds of absurdities. For example, there are those experts who feel that human life in Africa is a threat to the wildlife so that they are apparently aiming at the elimination of human life and in fact are pushing out tribes people who for untold centuries have lived in an area in order to accommodate their game parks. Marnham says the game park is not an African notion. Such parks or game preserves have always been unpopular with the people of Africa. They hate them with a passion. They resent the fact that these foreign game experts have the right to kill animals supposedly to control the population, all the while saying that they are scarce and are endangered but the natives who depend on them in some instances for their lives cannot touch them. He has a number of uh, interesting uh, stories to tell <laughs> to illustrate some of the absurdities. One man was a retired game warden who was especially fond of lions. Lions, by the way, are what tourists want to see most of them, all. He found that uh, there was uh, a problem. Many game parks of Europe and America uh, were very quickly overstocked. So this game warden decided that rather than having these unwanted animals shot, they should be returned to Africa and to the bush. And he volunteered to reinstill in them the fear of man which would reawaken their hunting abilities. Well, 
it did not work out. The uh, lion attacked and said the uh, small son of one of the park's European wardens. So they moved the animal hundreds of miles north, away from the park. But this did not help. The lion simply mauled a young man, and this sort of thing went on. And so, uh, as the author said, it was obvious that it was the game warden who needed re rehabilitation rather than the lions. But the lions were doing what came naturally. He cites another instance, leopards. Leopards supposedly were becoming very, very scarce. Uh, the fact was, at the time that uh, an international body reported on the threat to the leopard population, the leopards had increased so that they had become suburban scavengers and were flourishing in large numbers among the trees that adorned the gardens of some of the very people who were responsible for calling them an endangered species. They were growing fat on the pet dogs and cats of these people. Uh, one ecologist who wrote the report for the international body was severely tempted to suppress his report when he found he was losing his pets to these supposedly scarce uh, leopards. A very, very important section of Barnum's book deals with the scientists in Africa, the evolutionary scientists, because they have moved into Africa in great numbers since they can use pressure to call an area protected for scientific purposes, an area where no one can disturb or lift or move a single stone, because supposedly it's an area where they are going to find fossils. They get huge grants from foundations, from governments, from universities, for areas of study that are of no earthly use and are of concern only to a small number of specialists, and their main purpose is to attempt to prove evolution. The reserves that are uh, set apart for these evolutionary scientists are barred to outsiders. Anyone coming in, well, for example, he cites one area where Richard Leakey to, uh, uh, has his staff warn off anyone who approaches the camp without his permission. The staff has even been instructed to obtain the director's authority to fill the water bottles of any travelers who may apply for assistance. Moreover, L.S.B. Leakey, the director's father, was able to get all kinds of funds, including some from the National Geographic Society, uh, 
in the search for fossilized remains of prehistoric man. The patrons, of course, for such work were continents away. When they came, they all came together as a learned package tour to enjoy a private view. And it was very easy to engineer things on such an occasion. For example, let me quote this. But the research committee, which on the last visit included President Johnson's widow, Lady Bird, did not have to go away entirely disappointed. If they could not yet be sure of the human family tree, they could at least catch a glimpse of the excitement which overwhelms the most rigorous paleontologists on the conviction that they are looking at a stone that has been molded over millions of years from a bone in the body of some human ancestor. Just as the committee arrived to view the routine excavations, one of the excavators began to unearth a skull. Eventually, this was classified as that of a prehistoric baboon. But for a few moments, the irrational fascination of hominids had been visible for all to see, or nearly all. One of Lady Bird's Secret Service men described the whole incident as a stunt. Unquote. Again and again, things were uncovered, remains or stones, which were the object of fantastic theories, which supposedly represented a prehistoric ape-man. Very quietly, all these theories were later dropped because they were fantastic. They were excellent in making the front pages, but worthless apart from that. For example, I quote again, saddest of all is the fate of Leakey's most celebrated discovery, Nutcracker Man, the skull which in 1959 received worldwide publicity as the missing link and was the starting point for the association between the National Geographic Society and the Leakey's. A small museum still stands at Olduve perched above the gorge to explain the significance of this find, the best-known fossil since Piltdown Man. Outside the museum, there is a prominent notice board stating that since Nutcracker Man emerged, the work at Olduve has been sponsored by the National Geographic Society of America. The implication is clear. A unique discovery resulted in a generous subsidy. Without the discovery, there would be no money. Without the money, no more discoveries. But the notice board is out of date. And the museum has become an exhibition of abandoned hypotheses. Everything first claimed for Nutcracker Man by L.S.B. Leakey has since been retracted. The massive skull was supposed to be that of the earliest human ancestor, a member of the genus Homo directly in line with Homo sapiens. Now it is agreed by the majority of learned opinion that Austra Australopithecus Boisei, to give Nutcracker its scientific name, is not a human ancestor, nor is it a representative of a genus within the hominid family, nor is it a representative of a new genus, and so not even an original discovery of the most commonplace sort. Instead, it is merely another specimen 
of an established genus, an ape-like creature of minimal intelligence, first discovered by Lakey's great rival, Professor Raymond Dart, in South Africa in 1924. In serious con conversation, the name Nutcracker is also no longer mentioned, unquote. Well, there are pages after pages about the evolutionary scientists and their ridiculous theories, their exploitation of the scientific community and of the general population. Moreover, all kinds of experts are sent into Africa to solve various problems, all of which taxpayers in one country or another pay for and which result in nothing. For example, I quote, one visiting team of forestry experts who spent three weeks in 1974 considering the question of reforestation cost the United Nations $110,000. The leader of the team was paid $4,000 a week in all his expenses. Naturally, the fee was free of tax. The team's recommendations did not result in any visible action. This is typical. One of these experts made the statement when faced with a drought that this was tremendous. I quote, Their liberty is too expensive for us. This disaster is our opportunity, unquote. And so a drought, a human disaster, is for these white scientists an opportunity to force more controls on natives and the various African states are ready to comply because they get more money from us. The rulers of these states profit and the people suffer. All kinds of medical research is similarly conducted with a total callousness to human beings. Let me cite one example. I quote, the ruthless nature of the choice between therapy and research is well illustrated by another of the center's projects. For the last 25 years, it has conducted a survey in four villages in the Gambian interior where the health of the villagers was constantly monitored by a team of doctors. But since the purpose of the project was to discover a possible connection between the chromosomes and disease, the villagers received very little medical treatment. If they had been properly treated, the experiment would have failed. Their health was not harmed, but the doctors did decline to treat over 25 years numerous conditions that were easily curable in an attempt to place the future priorities of health care on a more scientific basis. Such an experiment would be impossible to conduct in Europe or America." Unquote. Well, this is not true. Experiments like that have been conducted in Europe and America and are now conducted with even aborted babies who are still alive. Moreover, children become the guinea pigs of some of these experiments. 
and the experiment is simply to accumulate scientific knowledge, not to help human need. This is a very important work. Patrick Barnum, Fantastic Invasion, Notes on Contemporary Africa. I strongly recommend it to you, and I suggest you look in your local library for it. Another important book, this one is in print, David Owen, O-W-E-N, None of the Above, Behind the Myth of Scholastic Aptitude, published in Boston by Houghton Mifflin Company in 1985 for $16.95. This book is about the scholar, uh, uh, scholarly aptitude tests, scholastic tests, and the fact that they are not uh, at all good. And this is generally recognized, but it's become a major uh, business to produce the tests, to use them, and to disregard them. As a matter of fact, quoting from Owen, page 230, the overwhelming majority of colleges and universities in this country require standardized admission tests but aren't using the results. There's no way they could be, Hartnett told me. If you look at the distribution of American institutions of higher education with regard to selectivity, You'd probably be amazed to learn how many of them are either open-door institutions or accept virtually everyone who applies. They may turn away kids who have some record of drug abuse or something, unquote. However, the tests in themselves do not test ability nor aptitude. He calls these groups... Uh, cultists, and he speaks of the cult of mental measurement. This is, in fact, the title of a very important chapter. He begins with Alfred Binet, the uh, French psychologist who in the early 1900s developed a procedure for testing intelligence. And he comes through to the present and points out that IQ tests, uh, scholastic aptitude tests, and the like are not valid, that they have come from very questionable sources, that their uh, use is uh, totally without justification. This is an important book. Anyone interested in education should definitely read it. He not only gives us a very careful critique of these tests based on considerable research, but he does deal also with the alternative for those who want an alternative. A very interesting work published just recently in 1985 and the last days of the year, is A. James Reichley, R-E-I-C-H-L-E-Y, Religion in American Public Life, published in Washington, D.C. by the Brookings Institute.
It is remarkable that this was published by uh, a Brookings Institute. There are many points at which I would uh, disagree with the author, but I'm very impressed by his general grasp of the subject and his fairness. For example, he destroys some of the myths about the colonial period, and he says, Massachusetts, contrary to common opinion, was never a theocracy in the sense of a polity ruled by church officials. Church elders, indeed, were not eligible to serve as civil magistrates. According to George Armstrong Kelly, though the vested power of a harsh creed was pervasive, state and church were distinct, and the clergy had less control over politics than anywhere in Europe." Unquote. He makes clear, too, the Christian impulses in the War of Independence and the fact that uh, Particularly devout people were identified as the core of the opposition to the Stamp Act and other measures in the beginning. In western Pennsylvania, a loyalist official found Presbyterians as averse to kings as they were in the days of Cromwell. And some begin to shout, No king but King Jesus. This was the kind of thinking that was in the background of the War of Independence. How often do you read about that? That some of the people who are most influential on the grassroots level were saying, no king but Jesus, in opposition to King George. It is important to note also that he calls attention to the fact that Deism was an exotic plant in America, it never struck root in the soil. Rationalism was never as widespread as liberal historians imagine. And that the basic fact is that the revolution had been preached to the masses as a religious revival. And uh, one writer said of it that while Jehovah, God of battles, got lost in the war, nature's God apparently found his armor lying there, put it on, and began to direct events. The language of the God of nature became inseparable for some from the actions of a God of history, unquote. So that however much some of the leaders began to use some of the European language, it quickly merged into the language of orthodoxy. Reichley also has some important things to say about the establishment of religious secularism in this country. He calls attention to the fact that we have seen in recent years the establishment of a religion of secularism. Federal support for the beliefs of those who think that religious exercises should be conducted only in private. He says, moreover, that the banishment of religion from public life does not represent neutrality between religion and secularism. The conduct of public institutions without any acknowledgement of religion is secularism. 
He goes on to say that what we are seeing is a federal position that religion has no place in national life. And he declares, and I quote, a society that excludes religion totally from its public life, that seems to regard religion as something against which public life must be protected, is bound to foster the impression that religion is irrelevant or harmful, unquote. This is an outstanding work. I strongly recommend it to you, and it is amazing that of all places it came out of the Brookings Institute. It does indicate that things are happening in this country. Another book, this one, an older work, and I think it is probably out of print, but I am not sure. Eric Ingvar Thorin, T-H-U-R-I-N, Emerson as Priest of Pan, published by the Regents Press of Kansas in 1981 in Lawrence, Kansas. It is an interesting study of... Uh, Emerson as a humanist. Uh, not that the author is opposed to humanism, but he's simply analyzing what Emerson was. Emerson was functioning as a Unitarian who felt that old-fashioned Unitarianism had to give way for a new kind, a humanistic variety. And he looked for a great author messiah who would lay down the foundations on a non-theistic basis for a new heaven and a new earth. He used biblical language to describe this quest and his belief that this was the coming thing. He was very, very uh, concerned with defending uh, Plato's Republic. He was ready to defend the Plato's Republic, including the passages which dealt with the community of women, which tells us something about his mentality. He also looked for a society that would uh, enthrone his kind of humanism and his belief was that women should be in an emphatically subordinate position. Some of his ideas were incredibly uh, bizarre. I won't go into all of these, but uh, just a little more on one aspect of this author Messiah. Quoting from page 216. Like Nietzsche's Superman, to whom he has so often been compared, Emerson's future potentate is a kind of antichrist. As Christ replaced Apollo uh, in the vision of Paul, so that he that shall come replaces Christ in Emerson's dream. There are even some direct 
comparisons. On one occasion, Emerson notes that Jesus failed to give us the victory to the senses needed to prove complete spirituality and God-manhood. He did well, but he that shall come shall do better, Emerson said. In the Divinity School Address, so prophetic of Nietzsche, Jesus is reduced to a prophet of the new teacher Emerson awaits. Much more like this, including the fact that Emerson believed that right and wrong are self-determined. In other words, one might say that Emerson's theme verse was Genesis 3.5, ye shall be as God, every man is his own God, knowing and determining for himself what constitutes uh, good and evil. In terms of this, there was a point in another book, Jeffrey Ash, A-S-H-E, The Discovery of Arthur. This is a book published in 1985 by Doubleday in Garden City, New York. It's a very interesting account of uh, the legends concerning King Arthur. Uh, who might have been the original Arthur and why was he the source of so much uh, legend, so many stories? Arthur, whoever he originally was, was probably someone who, when the Romans were in retreat and had abandoned Britain, and pagan forces were attempting to overwhelm it, stood up and tried, perhaps in uh, Gaul as well as in Britain, to restore something of the Roman order. Well, he is pictured, Ash says, essentially as a restitutor, one who comes to restore, one who seeks to uh, reestablish a fallen order. And throughout his study, he documents this hunger for a restitutor and the legends that arose around Arthur as the uh, ideal man who reestablishes a fallen order. In a sense, this is what is behind so much of the thinking in Emerson and in the humanists of our time. They borrow Christian terminology and they dream of reestablishing an order that uh, is one that exists in their imagination. They dream of a new world, a new world without God, increasingly, and that world is to be established in terms of their ideal man, the superman, the great community, whatever the person's perspective. It is interesting also to see the fascination that has existed with people over the generations for King Arthur. In recent years alone, a large number of books have been published and have sold well, all dealing with the Arthur theme. Ash's book, D. 
differs from all of these because it tells us why this interest in Arthur, the figure of a restitutor, a man who restores, a man who evens the accounts or tries to do so, has a perennial appeal. Now on to another book, very briefly. Edmund King, England, 1175-1425, to published in New York by Charles Scribner's Sons in 1979. The point of interest to me here, among a great many other things, but my immediate concern is that in 1086, 20 years after the Norman Conquest, the king owned 20% of England. Of course, the other people in England were theoretically uh, tenants because the new feudalism declared that the king owned all the land in England. Well, 20%, that's a very considerable portion and one that increased over the years. I cite that because we are regularly told how much land the church owned in the medieval era. What we're not told as often is that the church used this to provide education, to provide welfare and charity, to provide work for many needy peoples, and much more. Whereas the king's lands were reserved to the king if any poor man, hungry for food, poached on the king's land, he could lose his life for it, and very often did. Then another interesting book, a gold mine of all kinds of information, is All Manner of Food, Eating and Tasting in England and France from the Middle Ages to the Present. The author is Stephen Menel, M as in Mary, E-N-N-E-L, published in England, Basil Blackwell, in 1985. The book is interesting uh, for a number of little tidbits as well as for general perspective, but uh, just a few of the tidbits. The consumption of sugar in the industrialized world today is about 25 times as great per capita as it was in the mid-18th century. Surprising fact. Uh, here's uh, another interesting item. There is a very distinct correlation between religion and taste. I won't go into that, but uh, he does. While uh, religion has been uh, a much weaker influence than class, which is the strongest influence, it has nonetheless been a factor in the dietary habits of peoples. Another fact of interest, uh, we often see a great deal said in medieval sermons about gluttony. Well, when uh, we read these sermons, we think of gluttony in modern terms. 
as overeating. That was not a problem then. When preachers spoke about gluttony, they were talking about drunkenness. In other words, gluttony with respect to liquor. So uh, that's an interesting uh, sidelight. There are interesting sections on uh, Puritanism and food. An interesting subject uh, that uh, I won't take time to go into, but just to suggest that if you are interested in this sort of thing, you read it. Also on uh, Wesley. Uh, let me uh, read something from this on page 106. One scarcely looks to the greatest religious uh, leader of 18th century England, John Wesley, for an instance of rich living and gourmandise. Yet he seems to have enjoyed his own food and expected others to do the same. In his journal for 16 August 1744, he expresses some astonishment at a letter he had received from a brother clergyman which he describes as remarkable. The letter reads in part, Reverend Sir, I was surprised on Sunday when you were pleased to tell me I carried things to extremes and denying the lawful pleasures in eating. All which I advance is that he who will be Christ's disciple must absolutely deny himself. It was once a great self-denial to me not to go to a play or to other diversions, but that is now no self-denial to me at all. So that if I was now called to deny myself in these things only, I might take up with what is past and now live an agreeable, self-indulgent life. But God forbid. I plainly see every hour produces occasions for self-pleasing. At noon I may find many pleasant things. And of this it was, I said to Mr. Richards, if there are two dishes set before you by the rule of self-denial, you ought to eat of that which you like the least. And this rule I desire to observe myself, always to choose what is least pleasing and cheapest. Therefore I feed much upon milk. It is pleasant enough, and nothing I can find is so cheap. No better example could be found of the progressive, slippery slope, killjoy kind of self-denial. Wesley himself did not approve of it. Abstaining from pleasant food was, for him, the lowest kind of fasting. He showed some preference for plain food, but food was to be enjoyed. He said it is usually innocent, mixed with a little mirth, which is said to help digestion. Unquote. Well, too often this kind of attitude has been associated with Puritanism, but it actually came in much later. And uh, Wesley, uh, for which God be praised, strongly disapproved of it. We find echoes of that attitude even, even in our day. And I think it's sick. It's not godly. 
food was given for us to enjoy, and we are told even of wine that it maketh glad the heart of man. So you should remember your heart and make it glad. Uh, now on to another book, Helene Carrere Don Casse, uh, D apostrophe capital E N C A U S S E, Confiscated Power, How Soviet Russia Really Works, published by Harper and Row in, I believe, 1982, yes, for 1995, and it may still be in print. However, I'd like to read to you just uh, one, possibly two passages, because they tell us a great deal of importance. Perhaps the last paragraph in the book is the one to read. I quote, he describes previously the serious crises within the Soviet Union, the major weaknesses, and yet its tremendous strength in controlling the people. And then he concludes, real change is possible only if it begins in the USSR. Simultaneously weak and powerful, the USSR has based its power above all on the impotence of the capitalist world, and it justifies the continuation of a weakened and challenged system by invoking the weakness of and challenges to the alternative system. Is the future of the USSR in the end not contained in the framework of East-West relations defined as a competition of decadence, which amounts once again to asking Lenin's question, Gotokogo, who will be the first, the USSR or the West, to be defeated by its own decline, unquote. In other words, the basic issue is this, who is going to fall first, the Soviet Union or the Western world? including the United States? Very good question. A sad fact is we are helping prop up the enemy and preventing it from collapsing now so that we are most certainly suicidal here. Now very briefly to another book. It is the Diary of a Country Parson, James Woodford's Diary, 1759 to 1802, published by the Oxford University Press in 1985. One little item tickled me no end, and uh, perhaps you'll find it as amusing as I did. Nowadays, when we think of uh, proper Englishman, we think of one carrying an umbrella, well-dressed, neat, uh, carrying an umbrella. Well, in the diary for 1793, November the 4th, and uh, in it we read of an interesting point. 
namely that the first man carrying an umbrella was mobbed by a crowd. They thought it was so peculiar, so weird, that uh, they couldn't endure it. How times have changed. Now on to another book, just to urge you to read it. Alan C. Brownfeld and J. Michael Waller, The Revolution Lobby, published by the Council for Inter-American Security and the Inter-American Security Educational Institute. It is obtainable from the Inter Council for Inter-American Security, 122C Street, Northwest, Suite 330, Washington, D.C., 20001. Copies are 6.95 each. The Revolution Lobby is made up of those individuals, organizations, churches, and the like, who at every turn are determined to further revolution all over the world with the implication that we ourselves need it. It is very carefully documented. It is a devastating example of our will to suicide. I urge you to read it and to pass it on to others to read. Some groups propagate ideas that we would reject if we saw them coming openly from the KGB. Now to another book, an older work out of print by James Marshall, a biography of Elbridge A. Stewart, published some years ago in 1949. Stewart was the founder of the Carnation Milk Company. This book appealed to me tremendously because here was a man who was born before 1860, 1856, I believe, and lived to 1944. He had a checkered career. He started business in the South. He um, failed because of illness after having made an excellent start. He started later with a partner who seemed to be a good man. He was away on business and was defrauded by his partner, and in his mid-forties found himself bankrupt. In time, he paid off all his debts. He went into business again in his late forties, founding the Carnation Milk Company. Through a great deal of experimentation, succeeded in developing a method of canning milk where others had failed, and became an enormous success. He was a man of Christian faith, a man of character, and he represented an older generation of entrepreneurial leaders in the United States. We need to see another generation like that. Well, our time is running out, but I'd like to share something with you. You've all heard the uh, light bulb jokes. and. Uh, I'd like to read something to you from the hotline, an oil 
News Magazine, dated January 9, 1986. I quote, How many Nevadans does it take to screw in a light bulb? Seven. One to hold the ladder, one to replace the bulb, and five to make book on it. How many Louisianans? Three. One to hold the ladder, one to screw in the bulb, and one to bribe officials for the permit. How many Mississippians? Three. One to hold the ladder, one to change the bulb, and one to wake up the other two. How many Virginians? Three, one to hold the ladder, one to change the bulb, and one highly refined lady to remark how much lovelier the old bulb was. How many Oregonians? Forty-two. One to screw in the bulb, one to hold the ladder, and forty to draft the environmental impact statement. How many New Yorkers? A hundred and two. One to hold the bulb, one to change the bulb, and one hundred cops to make sure the first two aren't mugged. Well, <laughs> then this little item from a terrible book written by a criminal, you may remember the story, Jack Henry Abbott in the Belly of the Beast, Letters from Prison. He's the man that Norman Mailer got released from prison because he said we had no right holding a man like that in jail because he was such a brilliant writer. And he had these letters published, stirred up a great deal of uh, excitement in the New York intellectual community, and Abbott was released, only to kill a man very shortly thereafter and be sent back to prison. The book is full of all kinds of nonsense and environmentalism and the like. And uh, he feels that the prisoners are really victims and the evil exists not in the prisoner but in the guard. He asks the question, am I a homosexual, and deals with it in repeated passages. However, at one point, he does say something which is very, very perceptive. He deals with those who are teaching today, our professors and the like, and he says, and I quote, to be able to breed contempt for something is associated with the ability to teach." Unquote. Unfortunately, that is too often the case. Well, our time is up. Thank you for listening again, and God bless you all.